Hello, I'm Chris Hudson and welcome to FIS's Freight and Commodity Podcast on Wednesday the 24th of August. On this week's podcast, we take a closer look at the longer term effects of the war in Ukraine on commodity markets and we are pleased to have special guests from Lloyd's List to discuss the situation in the Black Sea. But first, let's take a look at the indexes. What movements have we seen in the past two weeks since the last podcast, that being Tuesday the 9th of August versus yesterday, Tuesday, the 23rd of August, in terms of the numbers being quoted. On the dry FFA market, if you look at Cape Size and Panamaxes, those have both dropped. The Cape Size is down $5,913 a day, or 47%. On the Panamax 40C, that is down 20.6%, or $3,295 a day, ending at 12813 yesterday. The Supermaxes, however, have nudged up, up 7.9% or $1,415 a day to just shy of $20,000 a day. On the iron ore market, the 62% grade has again moved downwards. $6.50 off or 6% off uh, had been $108.80, now $102.30. Um, Brent crude, that has moved from 95.78 to 99.78, according to the uh, closed reports of the FIS uh, end of day. On the fuel oil reports, uh, that's up 4 bucks or 4.2%. And on the uh, fuel oil, no surprise there that that has also moved up, moving up around about 57 bucks on the front pump future for the Sing 0.5% contract there. On the tankers, we've seen a mixed picture. Moving up on the TD3C, that's the very large crude carriers. And on the product side, TC2, TC5, TC2 has moved off. It had been 358.89 two weeks ago, now 231.39 world scale. And on the TC5, that had been 265.83, now nudging up slightly to 272.86. The steels, Northwest European steel, has continued its slide off. I remember those rates having been over $1,000 a tonne. Now we are moving very quickly and very closely towards that 700 mark. It had been two weeks ago, 772.25, now 742 per tonne. And then finally on the European Union emissions, that's the EUA allowances, uh, the 85 euros 93 have been two weeks ago. That has now pushed to 89.29, and that has not even been the high of the period of the two weeks in between those two. So moving up again in the carbon markets. But if you've browsed the news pages recently, you would have come across several stories relating to commodity markets as geopolitical, economic and fundamental changes drove price movements in markets. Some examples of these have been the resumption of grains exports out of Ukraine via the Black Sea, the ongoing saga of concern over Chinese economic situation with high property developer debts. There's increasing optimism as well of the of a new deal, a new agreement to put back in place an Iranian nuclear deal, uh, which would reduce sanctions on the country and allow exports again, especially of oil is of great importance and great interest to many. The ever-looming energy crisis in Europe as gas supplies dwindle on the continent and prices rise towards record levels again, all the while energy producers have bagged windfall profits from rising prices. But first, let's go to our guests from Lloyd's List, that being Bridget Dyken, a data reporter at Lloyd's List, and Dave Osler, insurance editor of Lloyd's List. Thank you both for, for joining me. And we're obviously going to be talking here now about Ukraine, what's happening in the Black Sea and the consequences for vessels and insurance and just kind of giving a nice little overview to all the people who are, are listening about the situation there. So first, uh, going to you, Bridget, in terms of the current situation of exports of Ukrainian grain at the Black Sea, what, what's the kind of um, situation that we're currently in? Hi, yes, thank you. 
Um, so right now we've got the Black Sea uh, Green Corridor Initiative going, uh, started off on August 1st after being signed in the end of July. Um, I think things optimistically are looking pretty good. As of yesterday, there's just over 720,000 uh, tons exported um, via the corridor. Um, so uh, we're seeing progress. It's, it is progressing nicely. Uh, more ships are coming in. More ships are also signaling uh, via AIS that they're, they're going to be arriving in Ukraine. Um, one thing I think many people will notice is that the exports right now are largely corn with a bit of um, a bit of wheat in, in recent days, but um, this is because that was what was stuck in silos um, at the at the beginning of um, of the invasion. So they have to kind of eliminate all of that and get rid of the ships that are that are stuck there um, before they can kind of start moving on to to other um, products and commodities. Um, expecting wheat to to increase in the coming weeks, but uh, again there are additional issues there in that it's been a it's a war zone so the amount of wheat even that will be available is kind of um, a bit of a question mark but Ukraine is expecting exports to go to three million tons um, in September so whether or not that's possible is a is a different question um, but so far there's been no issues I think the JCC said that two vessels deviated from the path but uh, that was fine. They haven't had any any safety issues or anything. And even one vessel, um, the Fulmore S, um, it's loaded a couple of weeks ago. It hit its destination and then um, went back. It's uh, it's on its way back now. So uh, I think things are, are looking good. And in terms of volumes, I mean, grains are low compared to pre-war levels, obviously, with things just restarting. And you're looking at the, the data side of things and, and do you have a kind of sense of when we're going to get back to normal levels, even if we can get back to normal levels? I don't think we're going to return to pre-war levels. Um, I think um, I think the three million tons in September is, it, it may or may not be realistic. I mean, it, it just kind of depends. But, you know, it, the... The grain corridor is not the only um, method of, of export from Ukraine and also use its Danube ports, um, which, again, is, is quite small on the on the grand scheme of things. But I don't think we can expect Ukraine to be doing um, anything to, to pre-war levels at, um, at this point, just because of, again, the damages to the crops and, um, and farmers unable to, to harvest because they, you know, they're getting hit by rockets and, um, and the fields are being damaged. Do you have a kind of a sense of what kind of level we might get to? And, and is this going to be a situation that's going to be much longer term of lower levels for a longer period of time? I think we can, if we listen to what the Ukrainian government is saying, I think we can hit that three million. But I believe, um, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe five million was um, was the level um, previously. So I think we're we're going to fall short of that. And you know, this deal expires also in 820 days. Was um, was how long it was initially. So whether or not it's renewed or it keeps going and it's hard to tell as well what happens in the winter months because vessels are only allowed to travel um, during daylight hours. So that will obviously change things as well and limit um, limit amount of time they have to, to move the vessels um, across. So I think it's as long as the war goes on, we're not going to be at um, at the same level as before. But I think three million is uh, 
three million tons is the best that they can probably do and um they'll probably then they'll they'll try to hit it as well because ukrainians obviously benefit from this and that they're making money which they desperately need to fund um the war effort so i think we can expect them to put in every effort to to get this on the water and moving and then the final point about these kind of cargoes which are coming out at the moment um has been destination changes i mean you can have that happen quite often normally but it seems that the kind of number of those which are coming out of the black sea with destination changes is abnormal and what kind of take do you have on what's happening there yeah that's a that's a good question so the destination changes it's something that is common um you know there's nothing abnormal for someone else to want to buy the cargo or for them to to sell it to someone else halfway through the journey. I think right now it's because everyone is watching these ships and they're monitoring them, um, which which makes it a, a bit more interesting. So what we've seen, obviously, the Rizzoni, the first vessel to depart, um, it was meant to go to, to Lebanon and then um, the buyer refused it, um, saying that it was um, it, too much time had passed. Um, from our sources, they've told us that there's nothing wrong with the cargo. And later, um, we've seen the satellite images of it um, docking in Syria and um, and unloading. I think one thing that people do have to remember is a lot of those first ships that are coming out were ones that arrived pre-invasion. So there are going to be questions about the cargo. Um, and another thing is just even confusion are they going to keep that contract um do the buyers still want it is it still valid um and then other questions of do they even know where it was supposed to go because these people are are telling the jcc where they're intending to go and then we're using that data but we don't know if it's the original crew on board if they were even aware of what the the destination was and if they're telling them potentially false information and not for any any reason to to confuse things but it, it, there's potential that they just don't know as well um and we're also seeing quite a few vessels coming out and um diverting and going off in unusual patterns um which it's not clear why uh, potentially they're looking to change destination, but equally, again, these ships have been there for quite a long time. And in the uh, example of the Star Laura, we had the ship go off into an anchorage and really they just needed more supplies, wanted to check the cargo, kind of take stock of, um, of the situation, which is reasonable. So I think going forward, it'll be most interesting to see the vessels that are new rather than the ones that are, are pre-existing and see um, where they end up and what the patterns are there. And then next, moving on to insurance. And Dave, this is probably a point that needs a little bit of explanation to people because we saw this agreement to say, oh, look, grain can start moving out to the Black Sea. We've created this corridor and everyone who is, I guess, not that knowledgeable about the shipping industry will go, well, you can just do it. So I guess, first of all, you know, why is this kind of insurance point something which is really important to consider when thinking about the Black Sea? Basically, you're asking ships to sail through that quite dangerous waters, waters adjacent to a country where fighting is going on on land. And for many ship owners, you're just not resting easy at night unless you know you've got insurance cover on that vessel um interestingly though as far as we can make out some of the early ships at least decided to self-insure as they call it in the 
insurance industry jargon, which is to say that they're just accepting the risk rather than buying cover, um, which may be viable um, if you've got a relatively low-value vessel. I mean, the, the big fear, of course, is that a lot of this grain is going to emerging markets to hungry people and poor people, indeed, and prohibitive insurance costs would actually make the grain more expensive for the end consumer. And then with rates uh, being quoted for insurance, uh, I know that um, Kerry here had someone quote saying that they had been quoted $200,000 for 10 days uh, within the conflict zone. What have we seen happen to those rates if they're being quoted at all uh, for this, this route? Well, 200000 on a vessel of what value? You know, um, war risk insurance is levied at a percentage of whole value. And in order to get some idea of whether $200,000 is value for money, you'd, you'd actually need to know the the whole value of the vessel. Um, but, yeah, after initial reticence, when the deal was first signed, I spoke to brokers and underwriters who said, at this stage, it's just a statement of intent. We don't have any data to price the risk on. Now that the consignments are starting to move, people are starting to quote. Um, I'm told the range is 1% to 2% of whole value, and that's not extortionate, actually. That's pretty much the regular rate for the sort of war that, that sees heavy fighting on land, but no express targeting of ships. So, yeah, I, I think it's quite a reasonable deal from the ship owner's point of view. It's what you'd expect to pay. And do we have any kind of other examples in recent memory where this kind of insurance situation has, has come about? Uh, yeah, obviously, the, you know, uh, most conflict situations, sea situations like this, I mean, the benchmark that everyone quotes is the tanker war in the 1980s when... Iraq and Iran were in a protracted and bloody conflict and ships were being hit by um, missiles quite regularly with one side targeting the ships. And then you were getting rates of around 5%. So that's the sort of benchmark for that kind of situation. With more recent conflicts such as uh, Libya a couple of... uh, How long ago was it? 2011. um, We're in that sort of territory. And do you have a sense of where this is now going to go? Because as Bridget outlined, you know, this has a expiration date on the corridor. We've got the potential of a lot of talk now of it, Russia increasing their offensive again and a long protracted war. Do you, do you kind of have a sense of where this important part of getting grain out of Ukraine is going to go? It, it will just be governed by events, basically. If everything remains smooth, then... Uh... There's no reason to think that these sorts of rates won't continue to obtain for the duration of the deal. However, um, it only needs something to go wrong for a ship to get attacked or for a ship to hit a mine. And in the event of a casualty caused by the fighting, then underwriters would naturally respond by putting up rates accordingly in line with the perceived risk. So those are the scenarios. One area lending support to parts of the dry freight market has been coal. We have seen Indian buyers speeding up buying thermal coal and strong interest persisting from China. I have Kerry Deer here, our head of business development. And Kerry, this coal story has been a persistent one. 
more recently developing into a European story with coal imports to northwest Europe hitting 1.6 million tonnes, a two-month high. And all of these factors we've discussed so far have, of course, had their own effect on the drive for fame market. So what are we seeing uh, from your perspective? Absolutely. And I will actually address that coal issue um in just a moment, uh, very specifically, because it's quite an important story right now. Um, but looking at the capes, they saw another week of losses last week as market participants' confidence over a rebound in the near term was shattered yet again. Some resistance from the owner side was evident midweek, along with fixtures reported at slightly better rates. The C5 West Aussie China rallying briefly to $8.20 per ton. However, the Atlantic region still lacked much activity, which again capped any gains with all routes marking lower by the weekend. Volume-wise, iron ore exports from Australia remained at decent levels, with miners actively seeking vessels, while exports from South Africa also made some positive progress uh, compared with the week before. But eventually that support just ran dry, uh, which led to some aggressive selling on paper Excuse me, in the later part of last week. The underlying iron ore market, I think, is the issue here. It just does not seem near to rallying due to that uncertain steel demand and slow-moving construction activity in China. Low steel margins right now globally, but especially in China, do not support demand for high-grade iron ore in particular. So shipments from Brazil to China are likely to be kept relatively at a minimum uh, for the foreseeable future, despite small improvements we've seen here and there recently. Just yesterday, it should be said, the physical market showed some green shoots, with the 5TC moving up $409, and the C5 in particular lifting back up to $8.35 yesterday. That is the West Australia-China route. The C3 edged up to almost $19.3 per metric ton yesterday, but it has to be said again that you know this index remains well, well below the paper levels, making a strong rebound on paper tough to imagine until we see some much larger gains on that index. This morning, September Cape 5TC is valued at $10,200 on FIS Live, down $4,500 week on week, Q4 trading around $15,200. The Panamaxes followed the Capes down last week, drifting throughout the past week, despite looking rather balanced, actually, in terms of cargo flows, particularly in the Pacific, and with U.S. grain seasonal demand beginning to pick up. Coal demand from Europe increased significantly, as you mentioned last week, uh, with weekly figures reaching a two-month high, and some support is being found there. Rate-wise, though, it was just activity too thin on the transatlantic routes, with offers still heading lower and the market down to uh, $12,710 on that transatlantic index yesterday. Even in the east, the round voyage rate has slipped down below 14000 per day now, and on paper... That September Panamax 4TC contract trading 12425 this morning on FIS Live. That's down $3,700 week on week. The Q4, meanwhile, at 13350 One more thing I'd like to talk about, as I mentioned, is the coal trade. Those impressive European import figures are retrospective, unfortunately. Um, and I mentioned last week that a potential swing factor harming the dry bulk market has been the apparent rise in Indonesian coal export bans. Um, this is a trade that has been very supportive of the, the dry bulk market in general, especially the Cape and Panamax vessels up until very recently. We continue to see the Indonesian government go by individual mines rather than making a blanket ban, but it does seem to be making some real efforts to constrain those exports. 
This week, however, I'd really like to talk about Colombia because Colombian coal exports have also trailed off. They've dropped below half a million tons last week, the lowest number ever recorded. That's according to DBX Commodities. This is stemming from a dearth of capital, an absence of new mining permits, and the closure of the Prodico mine, which are really crushing export levels out of Colombia. This is one to watch, I think, both from the perspective of the dry freight market, especially the Panamaxes, and of course the ever-worsening European energy crisis. We really need to try to understand where the needed thermal coal for Europe this winter is going to come from. Um, that's going to be important to understand from both the dry freight rate perspective and obviously from the perspective of you know people keeping the lights on this winter as well. And just to kind of put into context as well, I have here... Yeah. On a piece of paper in front of me, the seasonality charts, which you can see yeah. on our weekly dry freight analysis reports. And first of all, is giving Indonesian coal exports to China. And you can see in terms of the average there, the high of the five year, this is right up there in terms of, of rates. And then switching again to Australian coal exports to Japan, this is above yeah. that level. So the Australian coal exports have done fantastically well. Um, it's worth noting that most of those Australian coal exports to Japan are met coal, not thermal coal. So it doesn't go to power generation. It goes to steel mills. Um, Indonesian exports to China absolutely have been very, very, very high. One of the reasons why Indonesian power stations themselves are beginning to run short of coal, which is why the Indonesian government, unfortunately, seems to be taking some action to try and slow down the pace of exports a little bit. Uh, we'll see how that action begins to affect that uh, that chart. And if you're looking at this, the, the average, this is January to deck uh, 2017 to 2021, was in this week just above the, the 2 million tonnes mark. Yeah. And now we're sitting above the 4 million. Yeah, So this exactly. is significant. It's absolutely massive. Um, and the China trade, it's worth noting, is not the trade in particular that's been supporting the dry bulk, although it's been very helpful. But that's a pretty short trip in terms of tonne mileage. It's been that swing demand from Europe for the Indonesian thermal coal that has risen so dramatically this year. And that's been what's really been driving ton mileage demand um, in terms of a perhaps a swing factor on the Capes and the Panamaxes. So that's the one to watch. And there's another story in the FT I noticed this morning, or maybe it was yesterday, about um, Poland. And there are people bemoaning the fact that this is a significant uh, coal-rich country, which is, has been for a long time importing Russian coals. And now <laughs> is going, well, and as you pointed out, where is Europe's energy going to come well, from? Well, precisely. And I think you're going to hear a lot more agonizing about, you know, should we be restarting mines? Um, you know, is it even realistic to attempt to restart a mine in the matter of a couple of months? I, I highly doubt it. But let's see what happens. You never know, uh, given extreme circumstances. So. Oh. Reverse the, the Thatcher factor. No, reopen the mines. <laughs> exactly, as, exactly. As we have um, strikes here in the UK, I think that uh, we're getting a sense <laughs> of that. really bring us truly back to the early 80s. Exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah. Hopefully the music's as good. <laughs> exactly. Oil is another market that has been significantly disrupted by the war in Ukraine and subsequent Russian sanctions. IEA analysis outlined that Russian oil production has fallen by only 3% since the invasion of Ukraine, with 310,000 barrels per day production in July. A beneficiary of this panic to source legitimate oil and disruption to the usual oil flows has been the oil tanker market. Alex MacArthur, our tanker FFA broker here at FIS, discussed the recent revival in rates and interest in the tanker market. As you mentioned, it's been uh, sort of an interesting few months in the tanker market since we last spoke. Um, obviously, the, the conf conflict in Ukraine continues. The world's sort of coming out the back end of a pandemic. 
energy supply issues remain and obviously the potential uh, of a looming recession has all led to greater volatility, not just in the, the tanker markets, but commodity, commodity markets as a whole. Um, as a result of that year-to-date tanker volumes uh, sort of now stand at just over 430,000 lots compared to 340,000 lots for the same period last year. So that's we've seen 90 million tonnes more traded since, since last year. Um, the product tanker market remains particularly choppy with rates being very reactive to us to the slightest change in tonnage or demand um, within the market. Having worked in the tanker markets um, sort of for a number of years now, I can't remember seeing such a small difference in sort of volumes or or tonnage having such a huge effect on rates, um, particularly MRs, um, sort of medium range tankers um, in the West. They've been incredibly volatile recently. TC2, which is um, MR vessels loading in Europe and discharging in on um, in New York saw the spot market returning to world scale 200, uh, 230 this week, down from 360 just two weeks ago. So we're sort of seeing movements of 120 points, which is which is huge and um, sort of on years gone by isn't isn't really sort of the level that we'd see change. Just a, a small change in the tonnage list or a sort of a big increase in um, in volumes of cargoes. Um, in the U.S. Gulf, we've seen very similar TC14 um, for MRs, again, loading in the U.S. Gulf and discharging back in Europe. Yesterday, we saw spot assessed at 157.5, down from 370, which we saw sort of uh, within the last two weeks. So that's sort of over a 100% reduction over two weeks, which is just huge. Um, owners in the Baltic MR basket, TCE, so the time charter equivalent, a basically the amount that a, um, a vessel owner earns a day on the MR basket, which is made up of TC2 plus TC14, and then the return leg has come off from uh, earnings of $38,000 a day to $25,000 a day. The TC, TC6 paper, which is the cross-med route on a handy, um, going from Skipta to Navira, we've seen rates returning now to sort of 250 levels, where this year we haven't seen um, that route go under world scale 200 since um, the start of the year which is a huge return for owners and and if you've got a ship in the med at the moment you're you're making good money all this volatility has been incredibly beneficial to the paper market and we've seen an uptick in cpp trading week on week by 570 lots Um, but the sort of more exciting and more interesting part of the tanker market at the moment and all eyes sort of seem to be on the vlcc market which is vessels that are sort of around 300,000 uh, deadweight tonnage capable of holding up to sort of 2 million barrels of oil. On the paper, the sort of the main route that's traded as the, the main indicator of that market is TD3C, which is Middle East Gulf to China. Um, and from that, we've seen fixtures over the last two weeks continuing to increase, particularly not just the TD3, TD3C route, but VLCCs loading in the US Gulf and WAF, um, sort of discharging in Europe and still going to the east. US crude exports have risen to 5 million barrels a day, which is double um, where they were this time last week. And Chinese demand for now still seems to be remaining relatively high in, in sort of the face of a impending recession. TD3C still continues to look positive with the highest spot rate um, seen since 2020, where um, the pandemic hit and um, demand fell hugely for crude oil, leading to a surplus of cheap oil. 
where then any and all tonnage was utilised um, to store this to the to to then be able to sell later. Um, spot printed last Thursday at World Scale eighty point nine five, which is the highest we've seen in almost two years, and still remains in the high seventy nines today. This, depending on who you speak to, um, sort of gives a, a rough earnings of $44,000 a day for a, a standard VLCC with eco-scrubber fitted VLs now earning in excess of $60,000 a day, which sort of compared to a year a year ago where the Baltic were um, assessing these earnings as, as negative is now obviously very beneficial for owners. And I remember rates in the VLCC T3C market which were obstinately stuck in the 30 something and that was a long time and we kind of celebrated any kind of one world scale movement and now with this i guess it's more in terms of one recovering demand from the pandemic and two part of this wider rush for energy sourcing and in your mind looking i mean it's the impossible question of where's this going to go is this going to be the kind of higher rates volatile rates big movements like the 120 world scale rate movement that we've seen uh, on the product carriers in the atlantic is this here to stay? Yeah, I mean, in my personal opinion, yeah, I think I think we've still got years of this to come, right? Um, I, d- I don't see how this issue is going to be eased anytime soon. Um, owners now are very wary that they are in a more powerful position and can sort of hold a floor of these rates in order to continue giving them these good returns that they're seeing at the moment. As you said, TD3C was always sort of stuck in the 30s. Now just... In a week, we've seen it move 10 points, which sort of in eight years of tankers, I've never seen that. So it's um, interesting times. I don't know what the answer is to uh, resolve it. And uh, I think uh, owners are in for a good time for the next few years at least. But what about crude oil and the related products? What has happened there? High oil prices have caused concern for ship operators as they've had to pay through the roof to keep ships moving. This has driven strategic decisions like not ballasting to other regions to take cargo, leading to growing tonnage lists in certain areas and slashing potential earnings as so much more is being given away to these costs. I got Mo McIndowery here to give us a brief overview of the highlights in the crude and bunker markets for the last two weeks. Yeah, I'll try to be as brief as possible. But uh, so starting with crude oil, uh, we've seen some mixed direction in the last two weeks for both Brent and WTI. Uh, we've seen gradual decreases initially from one to two percent. Uh, before it rebounded back uh, the other way by just under two percent to ninety nine dollars per barrel. Uh, that was Brent prices, and with WTI, we saw just under two percent increase to 93. Uh, But of course, you would have seen today uh, that Brent crude is trading above 100 for the first time since the 3rd of August. Now, some people think it's to do with the threats from OPEC uh, to reduce supply recently, as they feel prices in the paper market have become disconnected to the physical market. Hashtag shock. Uh, we've also, in terms of the fuel oil, we've also seen mixed directions in bunker prices across all regions, uh, seeing 0.5 increased by just under 4% to $770 per metric ton in the last two weeks, and seeing 380 increased by 1% to uh, $505 per metric ton. It's also worth noting that Houston's high sulfur fuel premium over Singapore uh, has cut slightly from $98 to $67. Again, this is in the last two weeks, and these prices were noted from Engine Online's platform. 
Um, so far, our Singapore and Rotterdam's are very low uh, south of your front month futures have seen increases of over 2% week on week. Uh, you can get these prices from our FIS Live app uh, if you want to see more detail. Uh, in general, though, there's a gentle backwardation on the futures curve uh, for very low sulfur fuel oil futures and probably a flat forward curve, I would say, for the high sulfur fuel futures. Now, these are the prices. It's just also worth noting in terms of some headlines to think about. Uh, of course, the Iran nuclear deal is out there and that's what people are waiting for to close. Um, the thing that people are hoping with this um, is that supply will go up. Now, it's worth noting that Iran's full capacity is around 3.7 million uh, barrels per day, uh, but that would take time. Uh, some people have reported it could take uh, six months to get to that. So probably looking at just under a million for the first three months. Um, and of course, Russian oil supply is hard to replace. Uh, that's around 11.3 million barrels per day reported in January 2022. Now, of course, Iran has some of the largest oil reserves, uh, but we don't know how accurate the data is. We also don't know how it will be used, so we can't judge on that. And another thing to think about is the relationship between Iran and Russia. Would Iran want to ruin that? Um, would they do what the West want or would they do what Russia doesn't want? It's interesting to know what would happen. But we've definitely seen people like OPEC uh, resist uh, Mr. Biden's, uh, some would call, boiling to increase output. Um, and finally, another thing to note about Iran is before the uh, pandemic, their biggest customers uh, were China, India, and then EU. So the question is, with China and India getting discounted oil from Russia, what would that look like uh, if Iran come back? Uh, something to think about. But the thing we know the most is price will change. Uh, the reaction to this news and what people think will cause price to do something. It's always also worth uh, mentioning China as the impact uh, the global economies on large scales. We know that the People's Bank of China did ease the rates uh, at the moment due to the property crisis. Uh, this is important because, of course, property accounts for a quarter of China's economic output at its peak. Um, and also they say that the banking system has at least a quarter of its assets in property. Uh, so... The, I guess the biggest concern for them is that the property market crisis is going to drag the economy down. Um, so home sales have fallen, Chinese developers have halted uh, building works, and home buyers are threatening to stop paying for their mortgages. How, what this does to the economy will impact what happens with oil and the global economy. Those who have been following the European Union carbon markets will have seen a price spike to a new high of over €99, Euros, with prices up 28% since the start of this month. Focus seems now to have moved away from the immediate impact of the beginning of the conflict to the longer-term impacts for the rest of the world. And what you've seen with this price movement and the kind of importance of it is with those dwindling gas supplies from Russia, a large exporter to the European Union, and in terms of countries of the EU, and the wider continent, uh, a significant producer for energy. With those dwindling 
supplies, companies are now moving to different fuels. One of the products which has really gained from this has been coal. And you've heard earlier in the podcast with us talking about the hitting two-month highs of imports of coal into Europe. And the, one of the reasons for that has been this shift from using gas for energy production to coal production. And of course, gas is less polluting when you're burning that to produce energy than coal. Coal is a dirtier fuel and therefore you need in the European Union more allowances to offset using coal compared to gas. And there's a lot of this has been uh, driving this price moving upwards as well as a refocused kind of more normality as again that you've seen a lot of comparison, a lot of uh, correlation between gas markets in Europe and between the EUAs, that's the European Union Allowance Market, the carbon emissions contract. So as prices of gas increase, prices of the European Union Allowance have increased because people are now looking at those higher prices and going, this isn't worth using, let's use something cheaper and take the cost of having to pay for the uh, allowance for that extra pollution that they're doing. So that's what we're seeing in kind of environmental markets and specifically in the European Union there. That's it for this week. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the freight and commodity space, then sign up to our app, FIS Live, or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you'd like to give any feedback or suggestions, you can email us at news at freightinvestor.com. Have a great end to your week and join us on the next podcast.